One Life Church. Hope everyone is having a good morning today. Um, my name is Will Hess, as Brett has already introduced you to. I am the new student director here at One Life East. I'm excited to get to know all of you, but first, let me tell you a little bit about myself, because I know I am not Brett, and I hope I can live up to the legend. But I have served in pastoral ministry for about 10 years. I started off as a youth pastor and like a deaf, for those who can't hear, deaf ministry pastor. I, I did both of those things. And then I eventually became a lead pastor. And I did that for about six years. And then over the last about three years or so, my wife and I have been praying about where God would have us in ministry. I knew God wanted me in ministry, but it was really this continual wrestling of, where am I going to go? What does God want me to do? Things like that. And long story short, I have some friends of mine who attend here, and they made me privy to the position. I applied. Long story short, I am here. So what does that have to do with today's message? Well, today we are talking about community. We're continuing our series on community and how God took his people, redeemed them out of Egypt, and put them out and start creating a new community. That's why we're looking at the book of Exodus. And this resonates with me a little bit because I recently moved here. October 1st, my wife and I, we moved from Grand Rapids, Michigan to here to be with you all. And now that means I uprooted from my entire community, you know, friends, family, the church I served in there. And we came here and now we don't know many people. You'll be I'm going to be asking you your names a lot here, right? I'm going to be like, hey, what's your name? I, I'm still getting to know everyone. I personally am in need of community, right? Because now I am discovering a new community. Now, today, as we talk about community, what about community, though? Well, today, I want to talk about unity in community. Because one of the other things that I am passionate about as a person is unity, in the church. And that's because uh, as a pastor, I'm sure you've heard stories from pastors, but there can be division in churches. I'm sure that's news to some of you guys. But once in a while, there is division. And I've seen churches split. I've seen families fall apart. I've seen communities broken down. And uh, so much so, I even started like an online like ministry and YouTube channel called The Church Split, trying to push against some of that in churches and hoping to encourage a spirit of unity through challenging one another in love. But uh, one funny story I have, just kind of giving, uh, this is a true story, by the way. I had a, a lady that once showed up to church when I was uh, pastoring, and a, a gentleman came in and he was wearing a hat. And this, this lady took great offense to him wearing a hat in church. And she came up to me to file a complaint, so to speak. And she said, hey, I, he shouldn't be doing that. Women should be wearing hats and men should not be wearing hats in worship. So men, no wear hats. Women should wear hats. And you know what the irony was? She wasn't wearing a hat. So we're, I was like, well, and then I just did a kindly challenge. I said, well, how about you in a spirit of leadership Show by example by wearing a hat yourself before we start worrying about everyone else's headgear. And her comments was, well, maybe I will. She never did, and she eventually left the church. And, I, and so as a pastor, I was like, man, you can't make this stuff up. This is crazy. But really, when it comes down to it, there are times where disunity can happen. And today, I want to give you not just the principle of unity, but there is a certain virtue that undergirds that virtue. So, 
Today, we're going to, before we can go into Exodus, we have to go back into Genesis, okay? So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 41. And now, for real quick, before we get into that, a recap on Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his family, right? His brother sold him to slavery. He ends up going to Egypt, goes through a lot of hard times, but he ends up prophesying a dream for Pharaoh, interpreting this dream for Pharaoh, and, the, and he's telling him, hey, there's a famine coming to the land. God is going to either save you if you do these things, or he won't. So Joseph gave them the plans on how to prepare to survive this great famine. And after Joseph did this, he saves the land of Egypt. Pharaoh says this, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and as wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And then he gives him many gifts, including a signet ring, which is a symbol of authority and honor. And if you fast forward to verse 44, we see Pharaoh say this, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And all the people bow to him, and it's this great ceremonious moment. There's this overwhelming sense of gratitude toward Joseph for saving their nation. Which means that the virtue that is key to unity is gratitude. Because we see here, he, the Hebrews and the Egyptians coming together, worshiping the one true God. The people bond together and are unified. And this is the result of a united community, is that it thrives together. The church cannot thrive unless we're united. Your families can't thrive unless you're united. Your marriages, your friendships, nowhere can thrive without some sense of unity. However, if you now go into Exodus, Exodus begins with a pretty ominous verse. Just a few generations later, we read this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, I don't know how much you guys uh, know about Judaism, but in Judaism, that verse is the most popular verse, or at least one of the most popular verses, because it's a time that starts marking the Hebrew people. Kind of like how John 3.16 is our mantra, this is one of theirs. Why? Because just a few generations after Joseph saved, his, saved this nation, we see that Egypt had grown so ungrateful that they hadn't even known his name. One Pharaoh saying, not a single thing will be lifted without your consent. The next Pharaoh's don't even know who he is. They become self-serving and divided a once united group of people by enslaving the Hebrew Israelites and divided a once united group. They enslaved them and oppressed them. A once united community of people who acknowledged the one true God now became divided. One group of ci as citizens, the others as slaves. One group as valuable, the other as less than. This was a deep betrayal for the Hebrew people, and they ended up being enslaved for about 430 years. And I'm sure when this took place with the Israelites, it was, it was a, a deep sting to their hearts, right? Because they wouldn't, Egypt wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for the Israelites. And I'm sure the fact that, is, that Egypt forgot their debt continually chided at the heart of the Israelites as well. 
The very nation, again, that oppressed them wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for the Israelites, yet they enslaved them. However, if you guys are familiar with the story, God saw their suffering in Egypt. He sends Moses to, to uh, plead on his behalf to free the Israelites, and he sends t- the ten plagues. You guys might be familiar with you know, the, the blood and the Nile, the frogs that are sent, and all these other things, the death of the firstborn. And it ends up Pharaoh going, take them, leave. And they leave, right? And they cross the Red Sea and they enter into the wilderness. And once Israel enters into the wilderness, we see this in Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously and the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. If you skip ahead to verse 13, he says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. What do we see here? Well, they just get free from Egypt. They come on over, and now Israel recognizes the great things God has done for them. And they lift up their voices in unity and gratitude toward God and in thankfulness for what he has done for them. And they were a united group of people in community at this point. Again, we see a thriving community. We don't see them squabbling over petty differences right here, right? They're united under the one true God and the mission there. However, all good things must come to an end. Fast forward to the near future, and like Egypt, we see an attitude shift. In fact, in the same chapter, we see an attitude shift. They've gone three days without water, so it's understandably that they were thirsty, but they just seen God do all these powerful things. He brought 10 plagues to Egypt, and, for, and what happens? Well, they get out here, and they think that God's just going to leave them to die. In verse 23, uh, Acts 15, verse 23 says, Then... They came to Marah. They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? So now they're like, what are we doing here? This water is bitter. And what do we see? They grumbled. And then God still, he puts, uh, he, uh, he cleanses the water. He makes it sweet again. And then you move forward to the next chapter, just a few verses later, and we see in in Exodus 16, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hands of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And now we see that they're almost nostalgic for Egypt, right? Now, it didn't take long, did it? And suddenly there's this spirit of ingratitude. They grumble against Moses and Aaron. Now there's this idea of disunity is being sown. And you guys might be able to relate to this. Have you guys ever had a child, maybe on Christmas, after you've given them all these gifts, you spent all this money, you've done all this stuff for them, and then at the end of it, they were unthankful, they were angry, they were upset? Uh, I, uh, my, my wife and I, uh, a while ago, we took our daughter to uh, Great Wolf Lodge over Christmas, and it was funny because I was like, this is going to be such a great weekend, and my daughter ended up being like terrified of all the water, she was terrified of everything, and she was actually very, very grumpy, and it was like, huh, we do all this stuff, and apparently... 
It doesn't always matter, right? Because sometimes we are grumbling. Now, granted, she was like two, so there's, there's some excuse there, right? So she doesn't understand everything going on. She just goes, big water, and I don't like all this noise. But you get the idea. In Exodus 17, 3, we see this. But the people then stood there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? God provides them manna. God provides them water. And every... Five seconds, it seems, they're turning, going, well, we're dead. We're going to die. God's left us here. We're forsaken. And they keep grumbling and grumbling and grumbling, losing the faith that they had in God of who provided for them, and then also turning against brother and sister. Later, it says they even tested the Lord, yet God was kind and provided for them. On and on, if you're familiar, familiar with the story of Israel, you keep going through the story of Israel and seeing where they keep kicking against God's will, keep pushing against that. And even in Numbers 11, it says that they kindled uh, anger in God. God got angry with them because they had a spirit of ingratitude. What's all this have to do with the church? Well, Israel forgot where they came from. We talked a little bit about that last week. Israel forgot where they came from. Israel forgot who delivered them. And Israel forgot their debt to God just as Egypt forgot their debt, his debt to Joseph. So they turned on God and they turned on each other all throughout their history. And again, we could keep talking about their faults, but what does this have to do with us? Well, if you go to Exodus 15, we get this little snippet of what Moses tells Israel. He says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is, which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. He goes, hey, if you listen to my commands, I will restore you. And just as I pulled you out of Egypt to restore you as a nation, I will keep restoring you and healing you. And we see Christ kind of echo this statement, right? When he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? So this is idea of love, loving one another, and gratitude go hand in hand. For example, my beautiful wife, I can't say that I love my wife while being unthankful for all that she does for me. That will not go well, would it? No, not a bit. So... What, and what you would actually say, if I wasn't thankful for what my wife has done for me and my family, you'd say, my words betray my heart, right? Well, just like we, should do, we shouldn't do that with each other, and we need to understand that ingratitude can cause nonstop division in our homes, and it can cause nonstop division in our churches, and on and on we could go. At the heart of love is the virtue of gratitude, Israel forgot their love for the Lord because they grew unthankful for all that he had done for them. And sometimes this can happen to us, and we must not fall into that easy trap. Really, so unity, if we're going to talk about unity in the church, unity in community must be grounded in that virtue of gratitude. It has to be. Division occurs because we forget that which binds us together. Egypt forgot its debt to Israel. Israel forgot its debt to God. We often do the same thing, right? Think about it. We forget our debt to God sometimes, that he sent his son to die for us, that he, he became man, dwelt among us, and that he was crucified on the cross. And by the way, he did that for our church, for us, the community in which we dwell. He died for that church, and sometimes the way we treat each other, we forget that Christ looked at us as so valuable to, as to die for Instead, we grumble to him, sometimes for the smallest inconvenience, forgetting all the blessings he's given us. 
He's given us, you know, the church. He's given us corporate worship. He's given us fellowship. He's given us his word. On and on we could go. We also forget our debt to each other, right? Sometimes, how many of you guys have ever done something for somebody and they ended up turning their back against you? Yeah, doesn't feel good, does it? You actually, it, it kind of, it hurts. It might make you angry even. Well, that is what happens when we forget our debt to each other. And that is what Israel did. They turned against Moses and Aaron. Moses was the very agent by which they had freedom to begin with. Otherwise, they would still be in slavery. So rather than being united in the mighty work God has done for the church, we will sometimes leave a church, turn on brother and sister, and drive a hammer right through the center of it over silly, silly things. We take little regard in how God, in the form of his son, died for the church. God calls his community to be united in him and to be thankful to him and to one another. Paul said he wishes that there is, quote, no division among you and that you be united in Jesus Christ. And one of the best parts of our church and about the church in general is how our unity is supposed to work. Our unity is supposed to be radically different than the world's unity. The world only cares about unity through conformity. In other words, you have to think the way we think. You have to act the way we act. You have to do it just our way. You have to conform perfectly to our beliefs. Otherwise, you're cast out. A lot of other religions do this. But the church has always been marked. God's people really has, have always been marked by this idea of unity in diversity. So even in this Exodus event, by the way, um, we, have, we see racial diversity for one, because in Acts 12, 30, I mean, Acts, Exodus 12, 38, a mixed multitude also went up. So when Israel leaves Egypt, we see that there's this mixed multitude. It's not all Hebrews. Egypt, Egyptians went with them. There's a mixed group of people. Then we see in Galatians 3, 28, Paul speaks about this very plainly. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. No male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. We see this idea of unity in diversity. We have racial diversity. We have class diversity, gender diversity. I know this room is filled with different uh, diverse groups from different diverse backgrounds. Same with our online audience. We know that. That is something unique in Christianity. And we also have this cool thing of diversity of thought. In the early church in Acts chapter 15, it says that there was no small disagreement among them. And if you read early church fathers, you see them debating all this stuff. There is a diversity of thought in Christianity that is not found in other belief systems. We can have unity in diversity of thought and opinions. Back to the hat lady I mentioned. There is a unity there that could have been had, which is I am convicted that I think I should wear a hat. Then wear the hat. You can have a, and then somebody else might interpret that passage differently, and that's okay. We don't, we don't need to all agree on every fine point of theology. We don't have to agree on every matter the church, the church decides on. We don't have to agree on every logistical decision, and we don't have to agree on every precise application of various issues. We just have to agree on, essentially, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why in 1 Corinthians 2.2 it says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So there is this idea of conformity still, but the only conformity we ought to care about as Christians is that we conform to the image of the Son. That is what we ought to care about. 
It is not our race, our sex, our social status that defines us as Christians, not our age group, none of that, but our values being united under Jesus Christ and conforming to him, his image. This is also why at, at um, Mount Sinai, in the Exodus event, that God gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them a un unity of values under the one true God. But what happens is that we often don't pass those values on to the next generation, as we've talked about that, and as I'm a student director, something I'm passionate about. But how else, by the way, can a Pharaoh rise up in Egypt that doesn't know Joseph? Well, somebody didn't pass it on to the next generations, right? So that's why Psalm 145.4 is so important. He says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And if we fail to teach the upcoming generations the importance of Jesus Christ, it's how we end up with an Egypt who does not know God. You want to make an impact, then we have to push these values and teach these values and exemplify these, these virtues to the next coming generations. Again, we don't need to agree on every fine point. We just need to be unified in that which binds us, which is, as Jude says, the faith once delivered to the saints. And that is because there is a spirit of gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done. We can learn from the ingratitude of Egypt, and we can learn from the ingratitude of Israel by turning around and being thankful for what God has done for us and being thankful for each other in our community despite any differences that we might have. This week... By the way, it's Thanksgiving, if you don't know. And one of the things in Thanksgiving that can be difficult is sometimes having dinner with family. I don't know about you. Sometimes other people, they're very close to the family. Some people, this is a difficult week for you. But one of the things I want you to make sure that you do as you're going out in Thanksgiving is to express your thankfulness to one another. Learn to, learn to actually notice what people do. Learn to express your thankfulness to others. Even verbalize it. Be an example of it. Do what Israel didn't do. Do what Egypt didn't do. And pass it on to the next generation of what people do and what God has done for us. And I promise you this, by the way. If you dwell on what to be thankful for, you will find much less in your life to grumble about. Have you guys ever tried that exercise? I, I, I'll tell you what, it's a challenge because I'm a person who's a natural critic. I always want to criticize everything. And sometimes I find myself grumbling too much. And that is something that I personally have to work on because if I just focus on what to be thankful for, I'll have much less in my life to grumble about. And then guess what? I will be building up my community and not tearing it down. So if you want to build up your community, express that thankfulness in the spirit of unity. And then also, don't tear it down by grumbling all the time. A community thrives when we set aside our petty differences and instead look at the person of whom we disagree and realize that I ought to be thankful for you and your work and even maybe some of your viewpoints, and I'm thankful that you're challenging me. That should be something we're thankful for. This means we have to have a spirit of humility and not of pride. We have to be willing to be corrected. We have to be willing to be challenged and look at somebody whom we disagree with greatly and go, but I'm thankful for you. And I'm glad you're part of our church, our community, our family, or whatever it is. And so as we move on here, as there's a, an early theologian in the early 1900s, and he, he, he put it this way, okay? 
He says, the unity of Christendom, which is Christianity, it's a fancy word for it, is not a luxury, but a necessity. The world will go on limping until Christ's prayer that all may be one is answered. We must have unity, not at all costs, but at all risks. A unified church is the only offering we dare present to the coming Christ, for in it alone he will find room to dwell. And the thing is, is that it is a bit risky, right? To have unity, to have diversity of thought, there's risk there because not everyone's going to agree. There's also going to be risk in your relationships if you express that. But also, if you have this idea of love and gratitude and unity in our community, we can do that and thrive as a group. So as we go forward, I want us to remember that it is actually Jesus Christ who gave us everything to be thankful for. It is the Father who sent his Son to die on the cross for us, and it is that work that we ought to be thankful for. We ought to be thankful and have gratitude for God sending his Son, for saving us out of this world, which is our Egypt, by the way. He pulled us out of our Egypt and into the community of the church, which they call the body of Christ, and he and Christ is the head of the body, and therefore we ought not dare to try to destroy any of the church and instead try to live in unity with the church and build it up as a community. And as we move forward as a church, let's remember that very important thing when that moment comes in your family, when that moment comes in your church, when any of those things could possibly happen, because it will, that you want to have unity in your community and learn how to express your gratitude toward one another even if you might disagree. So with that being said, let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, God. We thank you for this time you've given us. Just come here, Lord, worship you. God, I pray that you'll help us to be a united church. You'll help us to not be like Egypt and forget our debts. I pray you'll help us not be like Israel and to forget our debts. And God, that you'll help us to remember what we owe to you. And that is, of course, God, everything. Lord, it is you who gave us salvation. It is you who sent your son. And God, I pray that you'll help us exemplify your life in everything we say and do. We ask you to say it in your holy and precious name. Amen.